as we look to our Lord now in prayer. Now, Father, we're thanking you for being our God. You're the God of the universe. You created something out of nothing. When humanity fell into sin, you put into place a plan of redemption where generation by generation, carriers of the promise that you initially established, Adam and Eve, would be those that continuously bring forth the strategy that would lead to Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But then again, we connect the dots, and we see that he was born in Bethlehem to die on Calvary. And Father, that has tremendous bearing upon us. It forces us to see from Bethlehem to Calvary, Calvary through resurrection on in to 2018 that the God who is the sovereign of the universe, who has put this redemption plan in place, who made a promise of all these things in today's text eight centuries prior, if this God of the universe could handle that degree of detail and minutia, in fact, it makes certain eight centuries prior that it was promised that subsequently would be all fulfilled. then we ought to be able to entrust our lives to you. All the complexities, all the challenges, the highs and the lows and the extremes of life, if the sovereign God of the universe could do this, what he can do in our lives and through our lives and for our lives might astound us, but it is in keeping with who you are. So if there's anybody in any of these services today who comes spiritually curious, they've been grappling with the meaning of life, why am I here? Why am I going through what I'm going through? How did I get here and where is all this going? Pray you'll bring that person to ultimate questions with ultimate decisions to be made. That a relationship with the God of the universe is found through putting faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, him alone as Savior and Lord. Speak to that heart today. In the midst of it all, warm these hearts. Engage these minds shape these wills as again now father we've come here we've come here to see jesus and him only and we're praying these things again now in jesus name amen one of the great sports announcers in the current era is ernie johnson and there's this wonderful book that's come out describing his life. The name of the book is Unscripted. And he has brought a lot of grace into the lives of people, children, adopted children into his home. And one of the powerful statements he is continuously being made, making to other people is how you live your life in the midst of threatening times. In a particular chapter of Unscripted, he tells us, 
So now we were sitting in a local Starbucks talking about how having a doctor speak one particular C word, the cancer word, can pretty much knock your world off its axis. And was it okay that I wanted to punch God right in the nose? We began to unpack what I said I believed, going all the way back to that day in December of 1997. Was this diagnosis going to shake my faith to its core? Or was my faith going to carry me through this trial? Questions. As I sit with my pastor and I'm pondering the significance of all this, Kevin Myers turns to me and says, in times like this, you have a couple of options. You can turn on God, or you can turn to God. Which way do you turn? Later he tells us that Kevin pulled a pen from his pocket, grabbed a light brown Starbucks napkin, wrote down one word, E.J., Ernie Johnson's nickname, EJ. This whole thing we're talking about is about this. Trust. He held up the napkin to show me and then went back to writing. Is it going to be trust with a question mark? Is it going to be I'll trust God if the next test at Emory comes back the way I want it to? Or is it going to be trust, period? You trusted him with your life six years ago. It's easy to trust him when things are going great and you're being blessed with good things left and right. How does that trust feel right now while you're looking up from this valley you've never been in? And Ernie says, and that's why I had to talk to Kevin Myers. And that's why to this day, whenever I send an email, my signature at the bottom of the message looks like this. Ernie Johnson, Jr., trust God, period. Is it trust God with a question mark? Or is it trust God with a period? This was the issue that the people in Judah had to grapple with. For you see, they found that their relatives to the north had entered into an allegiance with Syrian forces. And their family members to the north were about to invade them. Would they trust God with a question mark? Or would they trust God with a period? What I want to do with you this morning as we explore what might be one of the most complex of the messianic promises, and I'll do my best to keep it practical and simple. There are three significant realms of trust that I see here. I want to draw out for us this morning. And the first realm encompasses really all of chapter 7. So I'm going to give you an overarching view of this, 
that first of all, in threatening times, and maybe some of us this morning, we find ourselves in threatening times. Well, stand firm in the faith. Trusting, number one, in God's promise, which he has made to us. But now we've got to develop this, don't we? And so now in the opening verses of this seventh chapter, you and I are given some historical perspective. We won't get bogged down in history. We build a bridge from past to present. That's what we're always doing with the scriptures, aren't we? Connecting. So in verse 1, you and I are told that in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And you're right now in Judah, and you're saying to yourself, I can't believe what's just happening. I've got family members to the north who are now in allegiance with people uh, that are further to the north who are hostile to us, and they're about to attack us. Ever been attacked by family members? Ever found yourself in a struggle that you never anticipated to be part of? This is the situation now at hand here for the people of Judah. Take a look at the map that's on the screen. Ponder the significance of all this. There's Judah. You see, now we're in a divided kingdom. We are post-Solomon. And in this divided kingdom, now there is Judah right here. And to the north are their family members, the ten tribes that have, that have seceded from the union, so to speak. Up here? Well, where you see the word Aram, that's another word for Syria. Some of us know some Syrian refugees. Well, now, what the Syrians have done is that they have joined forces with the ten tribes here, and they are about to invade Judah, where you find Bethlehem, where you're going to find, you see, Jerusalem. Make the connection from Bethlehem, the Christmas story, to Jerusalem, the Good Friday Easter story. Begin to see how all this fits out, and notice the threat that is moving its way toward Judah. Ever felt threatened? Ever wondered, why is it that those that I thought I was closest to are in essence turning on me, turning away from God, moving in a different direction. This is what's happening here. So in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, there's Rezin, the king of Syria. You see in verse 1, or Aram. Go back now to the text that will appear on the screen. And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, well, they came up to Jerusalem. What's their purpose? To wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. They are, they are positioning themselves for a better, a better approach. Don't underestimate what comes next here. We're dealing here with the promise of Messiah. The promise of Messiah comes from what's known as the house of David. David received the promise that there was going to be a kingdom that's eternal. And so now, don't underestimate and don't overlook how it begins in verse 2, when the house of David was told Syria is in the league with Ephraim. What we're really being told here at this point is that the promise of Messiah is under attack. 
If Judah gets conquered, there will be no Christmas. There will be no Good Friday. And there will be no Easter Sunday. And so now, what's going on here is that the evil one is raising up even family members to attack Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and so on. And so is it any wonder here, the emotional reaction to all of this found in verse 2, the heart of Ahaz, the heart of the people, they shook. They shook it as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Well, Ernie Johnson would have loved the story about um, the incredible picture in the 1920s of Walter Johnson. My, could he deliver a fastball. And he was pitching for Washington against the Cleveland Indians. Well, we're told that the Cleveland shortstop was batting, and Walter Johnson quickly blew two blazing fastballs right by him. And now the rest of the story. The batter turned and walked toward the dugout. The umpire hollered after him and said, that was two strikes, get back here. And back came the answer, I know it. You can have the next one. And it didn't matter. Walter Johnson would strike him out anyway. You see, there was no use hanging around to experience it. Now, a lot of us would prefer not to experience threatening times. When that hard fastball comes at us and it's high and inside, we want to bail out. We want to walk away. But to do so, we've got to understand the significance of what's found here. The house of David is under attack. And it's the house of David that Joseph and Mary are associated with. It's the house of David that pulls together that David who shepherded flocks in Bethlehem. So much is riding upon this episode. And it's going to be all winter and no no Christmas, as Mr. Tumnus would remind Lucy, if uh, the white witch gets her way. And there's going to be absolutely no sense of redemption if the evil one gets his way, because it takes a Bethlehem to get us, you see, to Jerusalem, and the house of David is now being threatened. You ever felt threatened? So now you're up to verse 3. And in verse 3, you will notice that it is capitalized, L-O-R-D, because that's the covenantal relational name for God, and God wants a relationship with you. So again, if you come here this morning, you're spiritually curious. But you might find yourself religiously or secularly an unbeliever. You've got to consider the evidence at hand here that the God of the universe wants a relationship with you, but through Jesus Christ. But the evil one knows that, and so he wants to threaten the pipeline that gets to Jesus Christ. And so here in verse 3 now, the Lord says to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirah Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the water's field. Why there? The washer's field. 
Well, the reason is, is that Ahaz at this point wants to make certain he's got water supply because he's now most likely asking himself the question, how much longer can we keep on keeping on? Is that where you're at? Where you feel like the resources of life are diminishing? And you're wondering, how can I keep on keeping on? Would you notice with me that God has Isaiah go to him at that point? When Ahaz is examining whether or not I've got sufficient resources to keep on keeping on? That the supply is being exhausted? Sometimes God's word has greater impact when we are looking around at our resources and realize our resources are being exhausted. Where do I turn? What do I do? Where do I go? You see the strategic moment? God sends Isaiah once Ahaz is checking out his resources, see if I can keep on keeping on. And what am I going to say to the people? And maybe you sometimes ask yourself of that as well when it comes to, what am I going to say to my spouse or my children? You're in verse 4. Say to him, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. And then adds, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezan, Syria, the son of Ramalia. Now maybe some of us need to embrace that. Be careful. Don't be so impulsive when you feel threatened. Be quiet. There needs to be a quietness of spirit. Do not fear. One of the classic great statements of Scripture. <laughs> Do not fear. And so now you and I are looking at this and we're pondering this and they're most likely asking themselves the question, why am I going through what I'm going through? Maybe you're doing that this morning as well. And notice furthermore that God has gone out of his way to identify where the threat is coming from. It's coming from Syria. But astoundingly, it's also coming from family members. Ephraim is in league with Syria. Diodamon tells of life in Holland before the German occupation. Her family was quite close to one another in their church, she writes. Two girls in that family were her close friends. Diet's family often had Dutch soldiers for her Sunday dinner before the war, since they lived next to an armory. But her friend's family avowed that they could not do that because their family was so busy. And then came the Nazi occupation. One Sunday, Diet was aghast when she entered her friend's house and saw a portrait of Hitler hanging above the piano. Moreover, German soldiers were entertained there that night. Did Amen, who would work for the Dutch resistance, was prone to say that this family had forgotten their Dutchness. Too eager to fall in and coalesce with the occupying power. The problem was that the ten tribes to the north, the family members of Judah, were too eager to enter into league with Syria. 
And so now there's this sense in which you would expect some form of threat from Syria, but really, Ephraim? Really, Israel? Because the two words are used synonymously, Ephraim and Israel, in your Older Testament. So now there you have it, and you're, and you're grappling with this whole matter. I can't believe I'm experiencing this. I'm under attack. And I'm under attack from people that I thought would be in allegiance with me and stand up for me, not opposed to me. You ever been there? Well, they're saying, let's go up against Judah in verse 6. Terrify it. Conquer it. For ourselves, I don't want you to overlook what comes next because this has so much to do with Jesus. So much to do with Jesus. And set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. In other words, they're going to create a substitution. They're going to substitute the line that leads to Messiah for an alternative line. See what's happening? The evil one is trying now to figure out a way to replace the line that leads to Messiah. Therefore, in essence, what he's doing eight centuries prior is to replace Jesus. And so here we've got a world that's looking for a substitute for Jesus. And that's why, again, as I sometimes allude to, Islam in the Quran substitutes for Jesus on the cross, gets Jesus off the cross, substitutes for him. In the essence, in the Bible, salvation is substitution. But there are two substitution plans competing in this world. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for men. You see? Competition. So this is much more than military warfare. This is much more than ancient history. This is a threat to Jesus dying for your sins. How's God going to handle this? And how do you handle threatening times? Are you claiming the promise of God? Is your starting point. Well, no. at, the end of, at the end of verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So ask yourself now, in these threatening times I might find myself in, maybe you look at the past, maybe you're considering the present, maybe you're looking at the future. In threatening times, I've got to stand firm. After all, that's what it says there in verse 9. Trusting in God's promise, there's a realm to trust in which he has made to us, not just simply to Ahaz, and now you've got it up to verse 10. We're summarizing as we go. So again now, notice this, it's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. He speaks to Ahaz, and this is fascinating, you see, because if you were reading Second Chronicles chapter 28, you would find that Ahaz has long ago turned his back on God. But even though he stopped speaking to God, God keeps talking to Ahaz. And maybe you've got a relative, maybe you've got a friend, maybe it's a co-worker, maybe it's a son, a daughter, somebody who has stopped talking to God. But you see, God hasn't given up. God keeps talking to the Ahazes of this world, you see. Got an Ahaz in your life? So again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and says, ask a sign. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. 
Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, he is offering grace. You, you pray to me, Ahaz, and watch, and I'll give evidence of the fact that I am faithful to you even though you're not faithful to me. That's your God, you see. But interestingly, Ahaz gets religious on God. Ahaz is a religious unbeliever. Now, in the Garden of Eden, Satan, who came as the serpent, was incredibly religious. It was a religious conversation that he had, you see, with Eve. Did God say? So now, here is a religious conversation unfolding, and what he has done is that he has twisted Scripture to argue against God's grace. In verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, even though God has given him the opportunity to ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he's quoting, he thinks, from the scriptures of Deuteronomy 6.16. But this is called scripture twisting. This is a misapplication because God has given him the opportunity to spot the sign, and God is not viewing this as God being tested. A faith which can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted, we've said. Ahaz is having a religious debate with God as an unbeliever. So he said, hear then, O house of David. Now, I don't want you to underestimate the fact that once again, you've spotted the house of David. You see it in verse 2? Well, you see it there in verse 13. Hear then, O house of David. No, he doesn't say, hear then, O Ahaz. Because what God is interested in is producing this Messiah from the line that goes back to Abraham that encompasses the house of David, the promise that was given to David regarding an eternal kingdom. Remember that sign on the cross, King of the Jews? It's rooted, of course, in the fact that Jesus was of the line of David. So now here you find at this point that God is going to have to go beyond Ahaz and speak to the entire house of David, past, present, future. Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You ever weary God? Yet God keeps talking to his word. Therefore the Lord himself, and notice it dropped the small case, has to do with being the master of the universe, will give you a sign. After an Easter Sunday, one of my opening years here, a visitor stopped me in the hallway between services, hadn't come into the prior service. Uh, it was just somebody out in the hallway and said, um, could you talk to the staff about um, signage in this building? Do you know any of the pastors, she asked. I said, I, I see one just about every day. And she said, well, this building is complex, and I can't figure out how to get from A to B to C. Well, as the years have gone by, we've got some very strategically wise people that have found a way to take the signage and project it outward into the hallways now. So that in the flow of the traffic throughout this building, there's a sign readily available to tell you how to find what it is you're looking for. 
Now, God is saying, Ahaz, you don't even know what you're looking for, but I've got signage in front of you to help you get to where you need to be. That's the way your God works, you see. So this, then, stands out where we are told, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, the word virgin here is an incredibly interesting word, Alma. It carries with the idea of the virgin, not a virgin. Something here in the grammar tells us that God is identifying a particular person, the virgin, someone special that God has in mind. Furthermore, if you and I were to work our way through the Hebrew of the Old Testament, we would find on a continual basis that what is found in these verses is an evidence of the fact that this is one who has truly not yet been intimate. Furthermore, there is a now and a not yet aspect to this, because this carries with the idea not merely of the next generation, but subsequent generations, and shall bear a son and call his name, what? Emmanuel. So I recalled Amy Grant's lyrics. She does this wonderful job, you see, with one of her Christmas songs from years ago, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And then kicks right into wonderful counselor. He's the Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Holy One, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What has she done? She, in essence, has tied together then this promise found in chapter 7 with the one we'll examine next week in chapter 9, wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what God is doing is that he is threading this promise generation by generation, year by year, to get this Messiah strategy in place so that Jesus will come into Bethlehem and die on the cross at Calvary to save us from our sins. And there's signage in the hallways of life. It's there for you. Now, to protect our time, I'm going to go right into uh, our second realm. Because secondly, in threatening times, stand firm in the faith, trusting second of all in God's presence, which he's established with us. So let it appear on the screen now. We're up to chapter 8. We're looking at verses 1 through 10, and I'm summarizing at this point, but I want to leap right in to verses 9 and 10, where God is saying, be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. But he says that right after, in verse 8, these words, its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Let it appear on the screen right now, verse 8. Move on into verses 9 and 10 with it. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor. Be shattered. Strap on your armor. Be shattered. And then for everybody who is consulting one another, trying to figure out where is God, what God's doing, where all this is headed, check out verse 10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Verse 10, God is with us. What does Emmanuel mean? 
God is with us. So now, when you are feeling threatened by the times in which you live, not only do you find yourself in dealing with the realm of God's promise, you are second of all dealing with the realm of God's presence, that God is with you even in the most threatening of times. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was being led to his execution at the end of his imprisonment in the concentration camps in Germany, what he wrote into his diary of that day is incredible. Emmanuel. God with us. You need to have a sense of God's presence. As you now link together, connect together the dots of the promise of God to that of the presence of God. And as you do that, and as you're thinking about that, and as you're processing that, ponder this one. Civil War, 1864, war between the states, General Sheridan of the North. He, he's leading his troops forward, but then he's pulled away, having to deal with something in terms of a consultation. And as he does so, the Confederate troops move forward and begin to attack the line, and everybody is, is simply pulling away, pulling away, pulling away. And everybody is shouting out, where is Sheridan? Where is Sheridan? They need his presence. Sheridan hears of the fact that there's a retreat on him makes his way back to the lines. Historian tells us he met one panicky fellow riding for the rear as fast as a mule could carry him. Sheridan asked him how things were at the front, and he received the answer, oh, everything is lost, everything is gone, but it will be all right when you get there. And now the rest of the story. That was the sentiment. All along, the writer tells us, jubilant men spun on their heels, returned to the fight. Why? Quote, because they believed that if he was going to be there, everything would be all right again. A Vermont Brigade historian wrote, such a scene as Sherman's presence produced no more doubt or chance, for doubt existed. We were safe, perfectly, unconditionally safe. Every man knew it. Sheridan was here. Now, if you're prone to retreat in the threatening experiences of life, God is here, here in a tangible way. In the 1735 revival, Jonathan Edwards wrote, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, no, so full of joy, and yet so full of distress at the same time. But isn't that what life's about? A blend of sun and clouds. But there's a third realm I want to draw out. And for that now, you're going to have to make your way to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And you're considering this promise of Emmanuel, and it's coming full force at you. Because now in chapter 1 of verse 18, thirdly, 
in threatening times, stand firm in faith, trusting in God's provision, which he has given to us. And what and who is that provision? Look what's coming your way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, if he had done so, he would have not led her to Bethlehem. Had she not gone to Bethlehem, then the promise of Messiah being born in Bethlehem would be null and void. And now the entire strategy of redemption would begin to break down. You're connecting your dots. God breaks in. Look at the timing of this. Astounding. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Notice the timing. Ponder the timing of how Isaiah approached Ahaz. Ponder the timing of how the angel now approaches Joseph. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. What was the description of Ahaz? Son of David. What's the strategy here? God has a plan because of his promise to the sons of David. Generation by generation, the promise given to David of an everlasting kingdom. And here now is the one who eventually would come in on the streets of Jerusalem, where people are singing Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're pulling it all together now, aren't you? Well, Bethlehem was the city of David. Joseph's going to have to get Mary to Bethlehem. But as you consider these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. He's got the legal responsibility, though he's not involved with the biological aspect, to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear. But isn't that exactly what Ahaz did? He feared. Here's the antidote now. Contrast Joseph to Ahaz. And contrast the fear factor in Ahaz to the faith factor in Joseph. And how does that tension get worked out in your life in threatening times? Is fear greater than faith? Or is faith greater than fear? She's going to bear a son in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. And then you and I are delivered the goods in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet eight centuries prior now. And the angel is quoting the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel which means God with us. And God pulled that one off eight centuries between when he promised and when he delivered. If you're struggling with the timing of God in your life, ponder that. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. 
So in verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, which means God is our salvation. And now you ponder the threatening times that you might find yourself in. The realm of God's promise, trust. The realm of God's presence, trust. The realm of God's provision, trust. As I put my hand on the shoulder of a a cancer victim after first service, is it going to be a question mark? Or is it going to be a period? Because Kevin pulled out a pen from his pocket, grabbed a light brown Starbucks napkin, wrote down one word, EJ, this whole thing's about trust. And he held up the napkin to show me and then went back to writing, is it going to be trust with a question mark? Is it going to be, I'll trust God if the next tested Emory comes back the way I want it to? Or is it going to be trust, period? You trusted him with your life six years ago. It's easy to trust him when things are going great. You're being blessed with good things left and right. But how does that trust feel right now when you're looking up from this veil and you've never been in before? And that's why I had to talk to my pastor, Kevin Myers. And that's why to this day, whenever I send an email, my signature at the bottom, at the bottom of the message looks like this. Ernie Johnson, Jr. Trust God. Period. Is it a question mark? Or is it a period? Let's stand together. Time's right, Father. At quarter to the hour. Ponder these big issues in our lives on a personal level. Yeah, there's a lot of history in this passage. But we're connecting it to 2018. We're connecting it to where we're at right now. So if there's anyone who sees storm clouds on the horizon, maybe they've got a, an Ephraim experience where they can't believe that those closest to them have turned their backs on them. And it's part of the threatening times. Speak to those hearts. May we find that these three realms help us to better operate in the way in which we can go about making quality decisions. Standing firm in the faith. Trusting in Jesus. Leaving results to you. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name.